Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Something to Say. I just want to say thank you for being here with me. And I know it's been a while since I last recorded a podcast. And uh, there is a reason why. And I'm going to talk about that reason today. So you can hear exactly what's been going on over these last few months since you last heard from me. So I'm just going to get right into what's been happening. So it is now October, nearly the end of October. Um, But on the morning of May the 26th of this year, 2021, at around 6.30 o'clock in the morning, I was actually arrested at my then uh, place of residence in Brooklyn, New York, by three NYPD warrant squad officers. Um, just to give a bit of background, that the night before I'd had a really strange night of sleep and I usually do wake up quite early between 5.30 and 6. And I got up about 6 and uh, was just sort of pottering around, pottering about, it might have been 6.15 actually. And um, something just told me to go to the window and have a look. So I went over to the window of the living room and as I opened the curtain, I saw three men entering through the gate. Uh, They were wearing t-shirts, but they had on what looked like kind of bulletproof vests, I think, from my recollection. So I was a bit alarmed and I opened the window and sort of said, hi, can I help you? And they asked me to come and open the front door. I could see they had badges on. So I went to the front door and I opened it And they asked me uh, where the owner was. And I said, well, the owner of the building lives next door, which he did. And then they said, "Okay, and um, are you Lola? And I said, yes. And I said, who are you? And they said, we are the warrant squad. And I said, right. Um, Like, yeah, what do you want kind of thing? And they said, yeah, we have a warrant for your arrest. And then I said, for my arrest? And they said, yep. And I said, "Okay, now... At that point, although I didn't know exactly what I was being arrested for, um, I was not all the way shocked because I'd been having an issue with the owner of the building who lived next door, um, who is an actor called Benga Akinabe, who's most famously known for his role as Chris Partlow in the Wire um, TV series. And uh, has been in, you know, some movies and some other things. Um, But yeah, I'd been having an issue with him and I'd had sort of like a premonition. Um, I'm actually quite a psychic person. So I have a lot of vivid dreams. I get premonitions sometimes. um, And I've had that my whole life. Literally, I've had dreams of things happening or I've sort of received messages, which sounds very weird and it is actually quite weird. But a couple of weeks before due to the issues I'd been having with him uh, at the time he was my landlord. Um, We had been uh, friends before and I'd also done work for him before. But at that time, at the time of this arrest, the relationship had soured uh, for reasons which I will explain. But I'd had this uh, premonition that he was going to call the police on me. It actually probably wasn't really a premonition because now I think about it, he had actually threatened to do so a few times. Um, before the arrest and I thought he was just being completely b 
bizarre. And actually, um, him saying that he would call the police on me and that he was going to prosecute me uh, for sort of criminal offences and civil offences, which I couldn't really understand why, uh, actually prompted me to go to the housing court in Brooklyn and file an emergency petition to tell them that my landlord, which is this uh, Benga Akinabe, was actually harassing me. And I'd done that in January. And so, as I said, this was now May, May the 26th. So, um, you know, a couple of weeks before I'd said to my mum, I wouldn't be surprised if this guy calls the police on me because at this point he wants to embarrass me um, and humiliate me. I just didn't know exactly what it would be for. Now, as I told you, when the Warrant Squad guys uh, came, uh, I'd, I'd basically just gotten out of bed. So I was in my pyjamas, my hair was a mess, I hadn't brushed my teeth, hadn't washed my face, hadn't had a shower yet, and you know, it was that time of the month, and um, so I was not particularly happy about them wanting to take me away, you know, at that time, so I said to them, listen, I'm really sorry, I don't, you know, I don't know what you're here for, you don't want to tell me, Um, so I will come with you, but you're just going to have to wait until I go to the bathroom, and I clean up, freshen up and get some ID and then I'll come. So they all came inside the property. I uh, went to freshen up, you know, still in my pyjamas, picked up a denim jacket, picked up some ID, you know, changed, made myself, you know, fresh. Thank God I did that, um, given that it turns out that I was then actually locked up for 28 hours after this. Um, I did that and then as we were leaving my apartment they said oh we have to put you in handcuffs and I said oh really okay so in the middle of the street um, they put me in handcuffs Uh, a couple of my neighbours had come out at the time and were looking quite shocked and I sort of looked at them and shrugged my shoulders and then they put me in the van so uh, they then drove me somewhere Um, to a precinct, I believe, uh, but we didn't actually go inside. We actually sat in the van with me handcuffed in the back. Uh, There were two of them in the front, one driving, one in the passenger side, um, and one that sat in the sort of row of seats in front of me. And they told me they were waiting for somebody. And we basically sat there for an hour and 10 minutes, like I said, with me handcuffed in the back. At this point, still had no idea what I'd been arrested for and they wouldn't say. I did tell them that I had a feeling I knew that it was related to Bengra Kinabe and they didn't say yes, they didn't say no, but their reaction told me that uh, it was true. And so from 6.50am thereabouts until 8am, we just sat in the van and they actually had the sort of audacity to ask me what music I wanted to listen to as if, you know, we were on some joyride. And I said, you know, whatever, really. They put the music on. And as we were sitting there, you know, I sort of had, I started to have a weird uh, moment at some point um, after maybe having been there for about an hour nearly. And I said, listen, guys, I'm not being funny. I just, I don't know who you are. You turned up at the door. You've arrested me. I'm in handcuffs in the back of a van sitting on the side of the road with three dudes listening to music. And I'm starting to get a bit freaked out about this. At that point, you know, I felt like my my mind started playing a little bit of a trick on me. Like I was thinking, 
is this real? Is this a setup? Did this guy get some actors to come and, you know, pretend that they were going to arrest me and maybe they're taking me off somewhere and they're going to rape me or something? And um, but then I thought, well, these guys have guns, so they definitely are real police officers. It was very strange. Anyway, um, they got a little bit upset with me for that. And they said, "Okay, ma'am, just calm down. We're we're going soon. And uh, shortly afterwards, one of them did get out of the van, came back quite quickly. um, And then they drove me to the next location. So this was at eight o'clock in the morning. Now, at this next location, which was a police precinct, I was actually taken in through a side door um, to an office where there were plainclothes detectives. Uh, When I walked in, I saw this big sign that said something about grand larceny. I don't know what grand larceny is to this day, um, but I just knew that it wasn't good. And I do remember I've heard it in some some rap songs. So I'm like, grand larceny? You know, what, why, what, what's going on here? I thought, honestly, that maybe um, Mr. Akinabe had tried to have me arrested or had me arrested on some sort of fraud charge or something. The reason why I say that is because, as I told you, um, we'd been having issues and those issues stemmed from a few things. Number one, uh, when I first moved into the apartment next door to Mr. Akinabe's house, at his behest, by the way, he actually asked me if I wanted to move in there. Um, I'd started doing work for him. And, uh, you know, this work basically started taking over my whole life. And this was when COVID had just started. So, yeah, there, you know, work was a bit on, on a bit subdued and I had some time to do some other things. Um, but as time went on and his stuff became more and more demanding and we talked about money, he basically uh, kind of refused to pay me. And it became quite clear to me that he was just using me and basically wanted to rinse me for everything he could get. Um, at some point, I just said I just basically quit. Uh, he and I also had a, a very flirtatious relationship. We had kissed and had some interaction before early in the year before I moved in but our whole interaction when I did move in next door to him you know I was seeing him every day I was with him every day for hours um, you know morning till night type thing on most days and you know there was a lot of sexual tension um, and we'd had conversations about various things a lot of banter and stuff like that Anyway, um, as things went on with the uh, him not paying me for my work and then, um, you know, like really refusing to discuss it, telling me that basically I was becoming aggressive and stuff when I even tried to bring it up. And meanwhile, you know, I'm I'm paying rent to him. Um, At some point, I just said, you know, if you don't pay me this money, I'm just not going to pay the rent. That's what that's what I decided that I was going to do. I also decided that I was going to file a complaint with the uh, Department of Labour um, under the Freelancing Isn't Free Act. Uh, And actually, if you look at it legally, it's probably the case that I wasn't even freelancing. I was more like his employee at that point. I say all that to say that when I filed a harassment complaint against um, Bengal Kinabe in January of this year, the reason being that uh when I decided that I was going to um withhold the rent until I got what I was owed to me uh he started threatening me there were very weird things happening like a 
a nail turned up outside my front door, um, which was clearly intended for me to step on um, and other just strange things. But but yeah, he threatened me um, with uh, going to the police to file some criminal thing against me. And so since that was already there, uh, we'd been through five hearings um, by the time this arrest happened and, and actually everything had been settled by the time this arrest happened. So I paid him what I owed him. And from that was deducted money, which would, which went towards essentially the, uh, the money that he owed me for, um, for the work. And so that's why I thought he might've gone down some kind of fraud route. So I thought, okay, maybe he was thinking, you know, uh, where would she get this large sum of money from? Whatever. I don't know, you know, like I said, I knew he was going to pull some kind of weird stunt. I didn't know what it was and I didn't know exactly how he would have got it through to the law, but I was soon to find out. So at this precinct where the uh, I saw the sign saying grand larceny, um, I was taken to a holding cell, um, which was adjacent to the office. So I could see the office from the holding cell um, you know, so they put me in there. I had no idea where I was and I still had no idea why I was there. So literally for hours, I kept asking, why am I here? Why am I here? What am I here for? I was told, um, we can't tell you. You have to wait until the investigating detective gets here. Now, there was one um, black detective who was there who was sort of being quite nice to me, you know, through the through the bars and, uh, you know, he said to me, oh, well, you know, I, I was kind of surprised when you got here because I, I looked at the case and I just thought it was no big deal. And I, I don't really know why you're here. And I was like, OK, I mean, that's all well and good, but I'm still here. So <laughs> if, if you could tell me why I'm here, that would be really useful. But no. Anyway, um, I speak to my mum every day. I usually speak to her uh, in the morning, not long after I've woken up. And at this point, I guess it was maybe getting to 9am or so something like that and I thought gosh you know my mum's not gonna have heard from me and if she calls me I'm not gonna be able to answer and I need to be able to I need to get to speak to my mum and let her know what's going on so I asked that same black detective who told me he he thought this was no big deal if I could get my phone so that I could call my mother uh, he gave me my phone I called my mum basically said, you know, I'm locked up. This has something to do with Benga. I don't know what yet, uh, but, you know, that's the situation. And uh, my mum asked me if I wanted her to call anyone because my mum has a list of numbers. Obviously, I live in New York. My mum lives in London. Uh, but my mum and I are very tight. My mum has a list of numbers of friends of mine. My mum has always been a very active parent so she's always known my friend she's always known who I hang out with no matter what country I've been in and uh not long before this arrest happened she's always had people's details but I actually gave her a list of phone numbers of people uh that I spend time with in New York that she knows too just in case of emergency and she also had the details of the attorney who'd been dealing with the harassment case um, because I'd been sending her the documents and keeping my mum up to speed. So, um, yeah, I spoke to my mum. Then I was back in the holding cell. 
Now, at some point, um, I needed to use a restroom. And each time I left the cell, I had to be handcuffed again by two female detectives. So as I was going to the bathroom in handcuffs, uh, at some point, I don't know what time this was now. It was still in the morning, but it was quite a few hours in. Um, bearing in mind, I was arrested at 6.30, so I don't know what time this was. But I had said to them, do you know what is this is about? And one of them said to me, I can't tell you what it's about, but you should know that this is the special victims unit. And I said, well, what's the special victims unit? And she said, we deal with sex crimes. And I said, sex crimes? And she said, yeah. And at that point, I actually sort of laughed because I said, sex crimes? During COVID? I mean, you know, without being crass, like I really haven't been doing the do. So if I would, I'm absolutely fascinated to find out what on earth I could be here for under the auspices of a sex crime. Like, that is ridiculous. Anyway, she said, yep, we deal with sex crimes. I went back into the holding cell. Literally eight hours after I was arrested, the investigating detective, or I call him the so-called investigating detective, turned up. I say so-called because it quickly became clear to me that this guy did not do any investigating whatsoever. So uh, we went into it. First of all, when he turned up, he said to me, oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am. This wasn't supposed to go down like this. You know, I just got this phone call in the morning and the officers told me, we've got your lady, we've got your lady, you know. And uh, I was at home and I had to, I, I was in bed and I had to get out and come. I mean, the whole thing was just completely bizarre for him to tell me it wasn't meant to go down like this. Well, how was it meant to go down exactly was my thought. And then the way he described the warrant squad picking me up, like as if they were so excited that they just found some sort of gold or something. All particularly strange. Anyway, we went to, uh, he went to get changed uh, into his suit. We went into a room. He read me my Mirandas and all that. Uh, I probably shouldn't have spoken to him. I did um but yeah what I discovered uh he asked me do you know who this guy is he showed me a picture of Bengo Kinabe I said yes I do he said who is he I said well he's my next door neighbor he's my landlord he was my friend at one point he asked me have you ever touched him on the on the bum I said yeah probably yeah uh I pinched him on the bum like "Mm -hmm." he said well that's why you're here I said, oh, really? He said, yes, because that's that's a sex crime in New York. I said, oh, wow, okay, great. So um, I then launched into quite a rant, you could call it, about Mr. Akinabe and what I thought about him. That I thought he was a user, an abuser, an exploiter of women, um, that he was a narcissist, that I, um, you know, I'd been dealing with him with harassment complaint, uh, I have never abused, sexually abused anyone in my life. I do not, I, it's not something I'd ever think of. I'm not an abusive person. And quite frankly, I don't need to abuse men to, to have sex with them. So, you know, and I, and I asked the detective, um, I said, the only reason why this could have even come past your desk, if this is a special victims unit and you deal with sex crime in New York City of all places where the most hideous of things is going on, are going on. It must be because he's, you know, because he has a, a, a profile. 
And I know he has some political connections. So is that what this is about? Um, I also told him that I wasn't surprised that he'd called the police on me and that I know he's trying to get revenge on me and um, all sorts. So the policeman listened. And I also said, I know that this guy's trying to make me deportable. Uh, you know, I've got a green card and um, he's trying to mess up my chances of getting citizenship, etc. Uh, now, the detective, um, when we'd finished that conversation, said, OK, well, I need to go and speak to the DA's office and, and I'll let you know. And then he, uh, off the record, told me that, oh, don't worry about it. You know, this is just this are class B misdemeanors and this isn't going to affect your immigration status all that's going to happen is you'll get offered something you'll take it and in six months time you know all gets dismissed or something and I basically was like listen dude I don't care if this is a class b a class z a class whatever I didn't do anything okay I have not committed sex crimes I did not abuse the guy he knows full well I didn't abuse the guy and that's all I care about okay or you go and talk to the DA he comes back saying the DA wants to prosecute I was like oh word okay at that point I knew this is some fuckery, excuse my language. And um, somebody's doing some favours for a friend, but that's okay. Let's go. So he said, now we have to go to central booking and I'm going to have to, you know, you have to come with me. So I was handcuffed again. And off we go. So I go with the, the same detective and another detective, I suppose, they put me in a black van, handcuffed. We go to central booking. I have to do all that crap of the fingerprinting and the mug shots and all of that stuff and walking in these dank, dark underground tunnels and, you know, with prisoners banging on, on walls and weirdo stuff. Um, anyway, so eventually I, you know, they take your shoelaces out of your shoes and then he had to take my hair wrap out of my hair you know, and I was like, yo, have you seen my hair? I was like, listen, you need to give me something to tie this hair up. Seriously, like, come on, guys, <laughs> this, this is really ridiculous. <laughs> so I managed to get a rubber band. He took my headscarf so I couldn't harm myself with it. And then I was put in a cell with probably six or so other women. You have to remember, this is during coronavirus. I've spent a year keeping myself to myself so as to avoid catching COVID. And then I find myself in a cell with all these women. Now, thank God I was vaccinated by that point. But again, this is somebody, a Kinabe, trying to endanger my life on multiple levels. So as I said, um, so I was there. Before I got into the cell, the detective told me that... Uh, you won't be here very long, don't worry, something like you'll get processed and then um, you'll be out tonight and or in the next few hours. So I was like, okay, I mean, I haven't been through this process before. I didn't know what was going to happen. So there you go. Um, I spoke to that detective for about 30 minutes. He absolutely must have known at that point that the allegations were completely bogus. He decided to ignore about literally 99.9% .9 of what I told him. Um, in the end, I was not let out that evening. I was actually locked up overnight. I stayed the night in jail and, um, I was finally released the next day at 10 PM. So 28 or so hours after I was arrested. 
I'm really thankful to say that the women that I was actually in the cell with were all pretty cool. Uh, we all kind of bonded, you know, uh, they loved my accent. Um, people were in there for all sorts of things. A, a number of, w- of the women were in there for men who had claimed that they'd attacked him or them. And the women saying that those things weren't true. We We all wondered if, you know, maybe because it was getting towards the end of the month or something, you know, they were trying to fill in their statistics because some of the reasons why people were in there were just ridiculous. And then, you know, there was this this girl there who was Canadian. First of all, the vast majority of people, actually nearly everyone that was in there was uh, a woman of colour. There was a Canadian uh, lady that was in there, a white lady. She said it was her seventh or eighth arrest. And I have to say that the way she spoke to the police, the way she spoke to the judge and when she was arraigned and all sorts was, you know, she was in their face rude and she didn't she made no uh, bones about it. She also was in the country illegally. She's overstayed her visa. She was telling them she was like, call ice on me, call ice. And I was just really struck at the how she was allowed to behave. You know, um, because I know that no, no, nobody else in that cell uh, or in there were two cells actually sort of opposite each other. And at some point we ended up kind of switching. But uh, I know that nobody else would have been able to talk to anybody else like that. So there were some very interesting dynamics within uh, that time in jail. You could see, you know, people like myself who were quite vocal advocating for ourselves um you know you could see the differences in how people how people were treated um but yeah the night in jail was not fun um I didn't really sleep and then I think I I was able to kind of shut my eyes for for a bit and about I just knew I had to get to 9am because that was when I'd be able to see a lawyer um but the hours from when I woke up that next day uh, until 9am literally felt like a a lifetime and it it really made me think about people who have been locked up for long periods of time like Nelson Mandela people who've been in jail and who are in jail and who are innocent and how just excruciating that experience is especially when you know that you haven't done anything um, and how the time just drags you know and uh, it really just drags on I had a very weird experience too when I did eventually see a lawyer because they gave me somebody who then told me he couldn't speak to me because he apparently had represented Mr. Akinabe before. And I was like, wow, these guys are really having a laugh. Like, wow. And so they then told me, oh, well, okay, we'll get you another lawyer. And they didn't do that for about two hours, at which point I started calling the corrections officers saying, listen, this is ridiculous. I need to speak to somebody. Um, And they basically told me that because the lawyer from earlier had said that he'd already dealt with Mr. Akinabe, that nobody else from that particular, um, this was a public defender at that point, none of the public defenders from that particular service could speak to me. So essentially what they were telling me was I could just be there again all day Uh, without speaking to anyone and I was just like no that's unacceptable you have to find me somebody I'm sorry like this is corruption it's just so blatant you know just find me a goddamn lawyer so funnily enough guess what 20 minutes or so later they were able to find me one 
So when I spoke to this lawyer, she, you know, I went through everything with her. I was quite enraged at this point. And she said, well, it's quite clear that the DA has a very flimsy case. And I was like, mm-hmm, to say the least. Um, you know, she could see it. Uh, then I had to go in front of a judge. And this was all virtual, by the way, so because of COVID. Um, the judge then told me that I would have an order of protection placed on me, which meant that if I were to see, if Mr. Kinabe were to see me, he could have me arrested. Now, I said, well, that's a bit difficult because I live next door to him. So how does that work? Um, so the judge basically said, okay, well, my actually the lawyer I spoke to said she would arrange to have this thing called a limited access order of protection, which meant I could still be next door, but I just had to avoid him at all costs. And then when I saw the judge, the judge also said, the onus is on you to make sure that he does not see you. And I was like, listen, I don't even speak to this guy anyway. You know, I've been avoiding him for months. I don't like him. I don't speak to him. I don't really want anything to do with him. In fact, one of the stipulations from the harassment case, which is the one that I brought, was that he would not speak to me apart from through legal counsel. So, but hey. Anyway, after I spoke to the judge, you're usually meant to be released quite quickly. But they kept me there still for more hours um, until I started complaining again, saying, why am I still here? It's getting to 10 p. it's getting to the nighttime. Why am I still here? Everybody else that's been in here and seen the judge has left. Everyone that was I started off in the cell with is gone. Why am I still here? And I was also getting a bit concerned because this is Thursday night now, it's getting towards the weekend. You know, the types of people who are coming in were changing. There was a wonderful young chick that I met there who, you know, we had some good conversations, but there were, you know, some people with clearly significant mental illness who were coming into the cell. And I didn't want to, you know, have to spend any longer in there than, you know, than I had already. And uh, eventually I asked one corrections officer, I said, so tell me, are you saying that the judge has forgotten about me, forgotten to sign my release papers? And as soon as I said that, she scurried off and miraculously found my release papers after she'd been telling me that, oh, it's not down to her, it's down to the judge and the judge hasn't done it yet. Yeah, okay, I was like, it's all good. Like I said, fuckery. Anyway, long story short, I managed to get back to the apartment, um, walking down the street with my, you know, shoes without ties in. I had to go to the place where they take your belongings to. I'm so thankful that I picked up a denim jacket because it was freezing as hell inside the cell. Um, and I called my mum, uh, who had been amazing because she'd actually called some of my close people. And so begins the crazy journey to where we are today. And... I'm going to leave that for another episode of this podcast, but let's just say it involves what seems to me to be corruption, uh, a prosecutor acting in very bad faith, who seems to be emotionally invested in this case in a way that she shouldn't be, um, a narcissistic egomaniac celebrity who um, did not expect me to have hundreds of 
receipts, as they call them here in the streets. As in, I have kept text messages, WhatsApp messages, photographs, videos, Zoom chats I'd had with him, all sorts of documentation, which pretty much shows that none of this ever happened. You would have thought that, you know, given that we'd had five hearings about the harassment case, if I had harassed him and sexually harassed him in particular, that he would have mentioned it. He never did. He never at any point mentioned uh, it to me. Um, We continued to hang out after he claims that this thing happened, all sorts. And the last thing I'll leave you with is that, as I discovered a few days before he first went to the police, he asked somebody to call me. Essentially, this person called me with a veiled threat. Um, This was before the final harassment hearing. Um, This lady, who was one of his old tenants, who will remain unnamed because I can't be bothered to name her because she's not worth it, to be honest, Um, She called me saying, oh, Lola, Benga's asked me to write a letter. Um, I know you're in landlord court with him and I'm just so concerned. You know, I'm really conflicted and I'm concerned because if you're in landlord court, you know, that can affect your ability to get further housing and it can affect your immigration status. And I basically told this lady to get lost and I called her back and I said, listen, first of all, I'm not in landlord court. I'm this is a harassment case that I brought against him. Secondly, you don't know anything about this. So stop getting yourself involved in some he said, she said and allowing yourself to be used. Thirdly, I really don't care what Mr. Akinabe wants you to do. If he wants to go and start a letter writing campaign for the whole of New York, he should feel free. And furthermore, don't you ever discuss talk about my immigration status I do not have any immigration problems in fact I'm a fully fledged permanent resident I have every right to be here it seems to me that that lady relayed that to Mr Kinabe and it was off the back of that that Mr Kinabe decided to go to the police I believe he felt he'd received some kind of tip that maybe I was worried about my immigration status or something or you know whatever it was that he was going to do to try and make it so that um I could be deported. So more to come. Thank you for listening. God bless. I will, however, leave you with a prologue. So by the time um, I found out what the charges were, the actual charges, it turns out I had two charges of forcible touching, which are class A misdemeanours, two charges of sexual abuse in the third degree, class B misdemeanours, and two violations for harassment in the third degree, I believe. Um, It seemed to me that after the detective spoke to me, the DA then actually upped the charges. Uh, Again, very weird, based on basically pretty much no evidence. Um, And I'll talk about the evidence in the next episode. And um, I also wanted it to be known that Mr. Kinabe had previously told me that he was trying not to do things which could harm my future, which was another reason why I went to, uh, you know, file a harassment um, complaint against him in the housing court. I have all of this, by the way, documented. So um, since Mr. Kinabe is a liar, I'm sure he will try to deny it, but I have Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of evidence. Undeniable evidence. Um, But I just want to be clear. By calling the cops on me, Mr. Akinabe endangered my life. By having me locked up in a cell during a global pandemic, he endangered my health. 
by bringing serious false allegations, he attempted to destroy my livelihood, my status as an, as an immigrant and everything I've ever worked for. His allegations were tailored literally such that this would be considered a deportable offence and potentially stop me from gaining citizenship in the future. Um, he intended for me to be afraid of the law and to basically use the law to bully me. This was an incredibly egregious and malicious act of aggression, not to mention just actually part of his continued pattern of harassment. This wasn't an accident, it wasn't a mistake, it wasn't an error of judgment. This was a calculated, premeditated, malicious, vindictive and deliberate attempt to use the criminal justice system and his celebrity influence isn't like he's Brad Pitt or Idris Elba, let's not get it twisted, but you know, clearly some people are wowed and saw stars in their eyes. Um, you know, his attempt to use that celebrity against an innocent woman. It was also an attempt to use racism, misogyny, anti-immigrant sentiment and whatever else he could throw at me for his own self-serving ends. He actually told the police that I was crazy, by the way. And it was an attempt to take advantage of the sensitivities around the Me Too movement. Akinabe clearly has zero regard for me, for my health, my life, my livelihood, not my family, not my friends or anyone else who cares about me. He has no regard for the black community of which I am part and of which I care about and fight for truly and deeply. This has been, as you will discover in my next episode, a colossal and disgusting waste of taxpayers' time, money and resources. It's an abuse of power by him and by the DA's office. To say this is wrong is an understatement and I'm extremely glad that I was able to fight it and defend myself, despite the fact that it's cost me in the six figures financially. It is pure luck that the warrant squad officers, when they were handcuffing me and putting me in the van, that neighbours were outside at the time. Imagine if they hadn't been there. I would have left the house and nobody would have known where I was or what happened to me. Anything could have happened to me after being arrested at home at that time in the morning if there'd been no witnesses. To add insult to injury, this guy has been in a play all summer which claims to celebrate black joy while trying very, very, very hard to steal a black woman's joy, life and liberty, essentially violating my constitutional rights. He calls himself an activist for criminal justice reform while he uses the system to get innocent people locked up. He actually has a company called Liberated People while he's stealing people's liberty. He claims to be for liberated women while lying against women and putting them in the hands of the police. And I'll talk to you next episode about this liberated woman thing. He supports the Trayvon Martin Foundation while willfully endangering the lives of black people, just as George Zimmerman did. Uh, recently, he spoke at an event called Stomping Out Injustice as well as an event in support of the Women's Prison Alliance, which supports women who are incarcerated. So in other words, this guy is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's a fake, he's a fraud, he's a counterfeit, he's a hypocrite of the highest level. As I told the police, he's a performer by profession and in life. His claims to activism are nothing but a smokescreen to cover his nefarious misdeeds and his harmful actions against women. And I'll tell you now, I'm not the only one. 
I can only assume he thought it was going to be his word against mine. I can only assume that he was so confident in his acting ability that he thought that the police, the DA, judges, lawyers and a jury would believe everything he had to say because I was insistent on going to trial by jury, which is how this case ended up being dismissed for the most part. I will tell you about that too. Despite knowing the seriousness of filing false charges, which is in itself a crime, despite knowing that he was doing what he was doing was illegal, he still went ahead and lied to a police officer. His attempt to weaponize a criminal justice system and its race, class, gender and immigrant biases is beyond disgusting. It's worse that he knew what he was doing. And uh, you'll be hearing more from me. Thank you for listening.